This episode is sponsored by Lovely, an alternative to couples therapy. With Valentine's Day around the corner, it's time to get close, curious, and connected with our partners. Lovely believes modern love deserves a modern solution. These unique activity boxes for couples are a mix of therapy, behavior change, and flirty play. Their Valentine's Day Be Mine Booster Box promises connection, spice, and meaningful celebration of your relationship. Curious? Check out thelovely.us. Welcome back to Public Health in Action, where your hosts Mel and Keely, and we're excited to be back after a couple of months of not posting anything, but back at it. Yeah, back at it. <laughs> Pretty exciting. <laughs> Pretty exciting. We have some new information. We have a new website design. Our friend Sean Ramirez helped design our new interface. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say? I don't know. Well, he he really helped us out because we had like the website. We did. But he helped us like organize it in a better mm-hmm. way and add touches that made it seem more personal and less... It's, it's like two girls using a template they don't know how to use. <laughs> no, it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. So thank you, Sean. We really appreciate your help. Yeah, and we'll be uploading um, transcript versions of our episodes right. to the website, as well as links to them on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Exactly. I'm pretty excited about that. Me too. It's more yeah. accessible and inclusive. Right. We're also excited to partner with Lovely, a new company from Portland. It's such an incredible company and such a great idea, and it's exciting to be a part of it. And it's a product that we fully support, so we're excited to tell people more about it and share some discount codes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Very excited about that. Yeah. Um, This episode is going to be a little bit more serious. We have a pretty big topic we're going to be discussing, so... Let's get to it. Yeah, let's settle in. In this episode, we make the connection between where you live and your health. We're also going to describe an important event that happened to a beloved Black and Indigenous family in our Portland neighborhood recently, in which we observe eviction or the absence of a home as a public health crisis. In community health, we often talk about how location of where you live in the United States is a social determinant or a factor of your health. Exactly. And the purpose of a home is to provide shelter, safety, and privacy. But nearly 2 million Americans live in inadequate housing. The U.S. Census Bureau describes inadequate housing as homes without hot water, electricity, or heat, structural defects, and significant upkeep problems, which threaten our health. There's a link between the quality of your housing and injury or illness, too. At um at one of my old apartments, which was not well taken care of at all by the landlord, a friend of mine actually fell through my stairs. Uh, um, she was okay. Uh, she felt kind of could feel what was happening, mm-hmm. and she was able to jump forward, which still could have been bad because she jumped forward down the stairs. But she was okay, and it could have been extremely dangerous, and it's something that should have never happened. They actually, like, when we were able to see the structure, yeah. there weren't enough supports on the stairs. Like It wasn't built to code. Right. Like, when I think of 
how stairs should look. Yeah. And they have all these different, like, right. so the, it's like Supports. a system of supports. Mm-hmm. When we were able to go, when our landlord took us into the, because we were in an upstairs apartment, mm-hmm. took us into the apartment below us where we could see mm-hmm. the back of the stairs. Yeah. It didn't have all those supports that I've seen in other homes. And luckily my roommate at the time, Kendall, was like a boss about it. Like yeah. she was like, this is what it should look like. <laughs> this is what's required of you. And we need to the landlord. Stairs. Right. We need these. Well, to the handyman, but oh. like still. <laughs> but um, who worked for the landlord's like rental company. Right. But she was like, we can we can report you if you don't fix this properly. Wow. And we legally need to have a safe way to enter our apartment. Mm-hmm. And that's the only entrance. Yep. Go Kendall. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) You got to love women that are vocal about their needs. You know, that's... Yes, it's something something we should all feel like. It's something everybody should feel like they can do, but especially when we're put in situations that endanger our mind or body. Yeah. We should feel like we can be like, that's not okay. Right, exactly. According to the Annual Review of Public Health and the Office of the Surgeon General in the United States... 12 million non-fatal residential injuries occur each year, and of those, 36 to 45% are due to falls, contributing to 4 million annual emergency department visits. And the Institute of Medicine also mentions that structural issues in your home, such as water incursions that lack adequate drainage and ventilation, increase the risk of mold in your home, which is linked to an increased risk of asthma and other allergens and other negative health conditions. Can we also talk about, because you brought up water briefly, like, yeah. and how that affects mold, can we talk about water quality right. in your home and how that impacts your health status? Like, I know I've mentioned before, I grew up in Michigan, and I'm pretty sure most people have heard about what happened in Flint with the water crisis there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Flint, well, the Flint water crisis is such a big public health story that I think we'll have to dedicate a full episode to it another time. Yeah, and I would love to do that. Yeah, um, but basically, if you don't have access to clean water... Um, in your home, contaminated water can cause things like gastrointestinal illness uh, and adverse health effects like reproductive problems, neurological disorders, and things like blue baby syndrome. Oh, also, when I was researching, I um, found a fact that I thought would interest you, Keely, as a teacher. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lists that an increased risk of lead exposure in homes from hazardous lead paint can cause a long-term impairment in a child's development in a child's behavioral development through decreased IQ and attention span. Yeah, that completely makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. if it's affecting your brain is part of your physical health. And so it makes sense that it would affect that. And if your brain isn't healthy, then the functions that you do day to day, which include behavioral functions, aren't going to be kind of almost to this, to like a standard that we have, right? Which Mm -hmm. there are a lot of other reasons why people don't meet those standards of behavior, but that makes sense that that would be an impact. And Mm -hmm. Going back to lead specifically, I grew up in a historic home and the house is now well over a hundred years old. I'm pretty sure it was like 90 something years old when we bought it when I was a kid. But anyway, mm-hmm. we did a lot of renovations and things to to make it feel new and all of that. But because of my parents' financial status, 
we could afford a contractor who took precautions regarding the layers of paint that included lead. Mm -hmm. Um, When we redid our kitchen, which is really the only room that we had to redo walls in, everything else was just kind of painted over. But he had to strip it all, have, like, full ventilation. We had that completely, like, basically, like, cordoned off from the rest of the house. And I can't imagine how people who don't have access to or the privilege of that type of precaution or or renovation, mm-hmm. like a specialist, mm-hmm. um, can stay safe while doing the basic upkeep and renovations in their homes. Right. But there, we don't use lead paint. Like, there aren't homes that are continuing to use lead no, paint. No, right? no. The U.S. banned lead paint for residential homes in 1978, but there are still roughly 1.2 million homes with children under six living in them. And if you think about the long-term impairment that has on their um, behavioral growth and everything, it's just, it's interesting to me. Um, yeah. yeah. But lead and water quality are just some of the issues that can impact your health within your home. Uh, for example, poor indoor air quality can be linked to pollution and breathing in air filled with pollutants can cause symptoms that range from eye, nose and throat irritation to chronic conditions like asthma or increased pre-existing respiratory issues. So basically what we're saying is like poor housing conditions, like the ones you just mentioned, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there are even more there. Of course there are more mm-hmm. um, are associated with risk for poor physical and mental health. Right. All of these things threaten your health and health and well-being are connected to a longer life expectancy. So the physical place of where you live contributes to a positive or a negative health status of an individual. So let's talk about location for a second. Do you live in a neighborhood with sidewalks? Do you live in proximity to a grocery store with access to fresh produce? Do you live in a neighborhood where there are higher crime rates? Do you live near a major road? It's interesting to me, like, listening to you ask those questions, that not everyone has the same opportunity to live their healthiest life, but Mm -hmm. it's also not surprising, given what we're continuing to see and learn from our country's systems. People with a lower socioeconomic status live in neighborhoods with less access to living a safe and equitable life. Your neighbor up the street could literally have a better or worse life expectancy than you, and... I know I've said something similar in a previous episode, at least one. I know we only have three episodes, but at least (laughs) one of the previous episodes um, when we briefly touched on gentrification. But it's an important big picture statement. And when we're thinking about community, too, we need Mm -hmm. to not just consider the affluent parts of the community. You need to consider all of it. So it is a big picture issue. The way our systems are structured, though, do not support equitable living for everyone in our neighborhoods and often like with gentrification, that actually pushes those of a lower socioeconomic status out, even if they've called that neighborhood home for years and years. Right. So the CDC describes gentrification as the transformation of neighborhoods from low value to high value. But that's frustrating to me because gentrification is way more than that. It's, it's, It's racism. It's just, it's a racist system. It is. And if you look at the 
initial idea of gentrification, it doesn't appear to be racist, right? Right. The desire to, like, set up a system that is designed to make neighborhoods more safe and prosperous is by itself a seemingly good thing. However, that structure and system is placed on top of the building blocks of structural racism and systemic racism, and it does nothing to address, change, or prevent racism from leaking into that structure of gentrification. So then gentrification itself is now a racist structure. I wish they talked about it that way in those big health resources, you know, like the CDC. I wish the CDC wrote about gentrification in that way. Right. There's a, It's negative. It's yeah. more negative than positive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, gentrification is displacement. It creates health disparities for the vulnerable populations that are forced out of the area. And some of the vulnerable populations included are people who are poor women, children, the elderly, and racial and ethnic minority groups, it puts blame on those vulnerable populations as if it's their fault for not having a higher socioeconomic status. It's like the wealthy part of the community can push them aside and say, well, too bad, just figure out your own life. Yeah, it's part of the societal structure of shaming, and it's somehow appropriate in our society to shame people for where systems have placed them. Like, we openly shame people for being on unemployment, on welfare, all of these things, forgetting that there are systems that put them there Mm -hmm. and keep them there. It's as if gentrification is seen through this business lens or this economic standpoint where we're, it's like, we're making the community better and your house that's falling apart is making it worse and look bad. So this is what we're coming in to do to fix that. Right. And instead of that system having a portion of it dedicated to helping to make these homes safer for the resident Mm -hmm. as part of that initiative, but also enhance the neighborhood, they kick them out and they Mm -hmm. knock the house down. And like we're seeing in our own neighborhood, they're building condos everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And, you know, putting the economy first, like we do with gentrification, perpetuates trauma. And when I talk about trauma, I mean generational trauma, historical trauma. And this is where, if we're only going to look at gentrification through an economic lens, we need to bridge the gap between doing that and trauma-informed care. How can we do the things we want to do, upkeep a neighborhood, make it look better, while building up the residents that live there. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's where public health and mm-hmm. policy change can go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Because we we do this time and time again where we put the economy first, like you said. And the problem is, is that we have these systems that don't allow for gray area. If a property down the street has a higher value, mm-hmm. that raises the taxes for the whole neighborhood. Right. Instead of just that property. Like, why don't neighborhoods have sliding scale of mm-hmm. the value of your home mm-hmm. changes the amount of taxes you pay instead of the value of the wealthy homes around the poorer housing exactly negatively impacts them and being able to keep up with their payments. Like so- we... It's one of it's one of those situations, oddly enough, where we have this like the whole neighborhood has value as one neighborhood, and we have this like almost seemingly mm-hmm. unified idea of it's one neighborhood has a value, yeah. but we don't see how like 
when you break it down. It doesn't play into the social strata. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It only plays into support capitalism. Right. Yeah. I think that goes with not understanding what plays into what a community is yes. and the social issues that communities face. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny because I know you and I have had this conversation about farming and like <laughs> creating, but creating yeah. a singular, yep. um, like a lack of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And when you have things like gentrification and you don't have policies in place that support the diversity of a neighborhood yeah. in every direction, diversity in every direction, that mm-hmm. especially includes socioeconomic status. I feel like those neighborhoods lose out and it creates a monoculture. Yep. And it also supports the historical dominant culture, which is White. white and mostly male. Yep. This episode is sponsored by Lovely. An alternative to couples therapy. Lovely believes that modern love deserves a modern solution. That we get to rewrite the rules when it comes to how we live, how we love, and what matters in our lives. Founder of Lovely, Alex McMillan, has designed beautiful and meaningful activity boxes that come with all the supplies and instructions to help couples give their relationships the attention it deserves. Lovely is totally unique, a mix of therapy, behavior change, and flirty play that makes connection and growth easy. Activities range from understanding your partner's core values to writing love letters to changing up your intimacy playbook. Interested in Lovely? Visit thelovely.us. Currently available only in the U.S. Use promo code Let's Make Lovely for ten percent off. That's Let's Make Lovely in all caps. Cheers. Because this episode is about where you live and your health, we're going to share a story about a family in our Portland community who is experiencing an ongoing struggle to keep their home. The series of events that happened over several months exposed sensitive but not invisible social issues with eviction, gentrification, racism, discrimination, police brutality, and above all, resilience. A big part of community health is knowing and trusting that the community members' experiences are always valued. Exactly. They are the experts of their lived experience. When a vulnerable population, such as a minority group, experiences oppression, it's our responsibility as adult members of the community, to listen to their experience. And also not to come in with judgments or a savior complex thinking that you can solve the experience as an outsider or a third party, as if you have more knowledge than those being oppressed. It's our job to ask, what do you need and how can I help? And most importantly, how can I help you and not, I can help. Exactly. There were a lot of issues with news reports that came out surrounding the events that the Kinney family lived through. And part of health literacy and media literacy is knowing where the source of information is coming from and also the individuals who are reporting it. So just because you're a journalist, it doesn't mean that you are unbiased when discussing these important issues in the way they should be talked about. And language really matters. Yeah, you're exactly right. And in this specific situation, I think it's also important to mention that it wasn't just about where the information came from, but how pertinent that information was to the situation. There were news reports that brought up issues from the past, which were clearly meant to be used to discredit the Kinney family's story. Mm -hmm. These things should have no connection to them being evicted. And we've seen this time and time again with BIPOC communities where their past is used against them as a way to say that they deserve what they're going through now. It contributes to stigmas. It really does, does. yes. So 
This is what public health is. A person's past should not prevent them from having a healthy present or future. And with all this in mind, we're going to tell this story in their own words to give credit to their lived experience and greater depth to the story that these journalists didn't have the ability to or the time to provide. And even though the story is specific to our community, it likely has happened in your own as well. This, unfortunately, is not a singular event. No, it's not. So we are going to read directly from the Kinney family's website, uh, their press releases, and first account stories to share accurate information directly from the source on www.redhouseonmississippi.com. One of the oldest standing homes in the neighborhood, the Red House on Mississippi, was built in 1896 and has belonged to the Kinney family for 65 years. In the 1950s, William and Pauline Kinney, an African-American couple, moved to Portland from Little Rock, Arkansas, to escape Deep South oppression. Like other black families, they were redlined out of getting loans in North Portland and bought the home outright with cash in 1955. There, they raised their children, and a new generation of Kinneys made the Red House their family home. The following is a press release from the Kinney family on October 20th, 2020. Local family seeks to get their home back. Multi-year fraud and deceit nightmare culminates in recent eviction at gunpoint. Portland, Oregon. On the morning of September 9th, County Sheriff Patrol arrived with assault rifles to a historic home on North Mississippi Avenue. They proceeded to forcibly evict the elderly William Kinney Jr., his wife Julie Metcalf, and their two adult sons from their longtime family home. They even handcuffed and detained the two sons in the patrol vehicle while removing the parents from their home. We are saddened to hear of families losing their homes to foreclosure, but assume they just didn't pay their mortgage. However, the Kinneys only had a relatively small second mortgage, and it was not in default. Further, the Kinneys made repeated efforts to clarify the situation and fight the intended foreclosure through the lenders and the courts, but the judges of two courts still allowed the fraudulent foreclosure to proceed. Quote, I have fought for this community my whole life, said Julie Metcalf Kinney, who ironically has dedicated her life to serving low-income populations sitting on various boards and committees, such as the Urban Renewal Committee of Portland. Quote, I am devastated that my family has had to go through this. It is criminal what the city has done to our people, end quote. Oregon, like many states, offer a right of redemption, which allows people whose homes have been foreclosed on to buy them back. So after the foreclosure, the Kinneys attempted to exercise their right of redemption through buying back their home just after the foreclosure, but the court denied that as well. The right of redemption does not apply to non-judicial foreclosures. Some have raised concerns about allowing banks to use a non-judicial process to auction off people's homes, since it excludes owners from having the right to a jury trial. Quote, at this moment in time, taking someone's home is an unconscionable, inhumane act, said State Representative Tana Sanchez. Quote, the Kinneys were removed from their home, not just in the midst of a global pandemic, but during the recent air quality emergency. No access to attorneys to take on financial institutions through a convoluted legal process is another example of the many inequities that people of color still face in our state, end quote. The trouble for the Kinneys began in 2004 when they refinanced their second mortgage with Beneficial Organ to pay off an adjustable rate mortgage that had an increasing interest rate. 
The first loan was paid off by the new one, but the document, or deed of reconveyance, listed Mortgage Electronic Registration System, Inc., or MERS, as the beneficiary. In order for the non-judicial foreclosure to go forward, every assignment of the deed of trust has to be recorded at the county, but the MERS assignment was never recorded with the county. Multnomah County sued MERS for widespread violations related to their failure to record deeds of trust. The county settled the suit in 2016. In December 2016, the Kinneys received a notice that the loan had been transferred from a beneficial to MTGLQ investors, but that they should continue to send payments to beneficial as the servicer. The loan was evidently assigned from Beneficial Financial One, Inc., as successor through merger to beneficial to MTGLQ. The Kinneys then received paperwork from both entities for the next two months, each demanding payment. So the family sent a letter seeking to verify the new entity that was servicing the loan. In May 2017, the loan was again sold, this time to U.S. Bank Trust National Association. It was then transferred to U.S. Bank Trust REO Trust. In May of 2018, Clear Recon Corporation was appointed as successor trustee of the 2004 deed of trust, and they initiated process to foreclose on the Kinney's home. The Kinney's continued, as best they could without legal representation, to challenge the process, but their home was sold via auction as a non-judicial foreclosure in October of 2018. The Kinney's even tried to bid on their own home at the auction, but were refused. Their home was reportedly sold to a developer, Urban Housing Development, which apparently requested the recent eviction. UHD got the deed in 2018. UHD attempted to evict the Kinneys when it got the deed despite first being served with the Kinneys' federal complaint. However, the eviction was stalled by the Kinneys' federal complaint and state counterclaim. Those were dismissed in October 2019 and February 2020, respectively. That same month, February of 2020, possession of the Kinney's home was awarded to UHD. In March 2020, Oregon declared a state of emergency due to COVID-19, which halted the eviction. Then, in the middle of this crisis period, coronavirus pandemic, statewide foreclosure moratorium, and huge fires with the worst air quality in the world, UHD chose to forcefully turn this family out onto the street. Although local law requires multiple forms of notification prior to evictions, the Kinneys received no notice before the sheriff patrol came with guns to forcefully evict them in September. Quote, I've been neighbors of the Kinney family for about 15 years, said Michael Ziegler. They have been forced to watch dear friends and neighbors they've known for decades be unceremoniously pushed to the wayside in the name of profit and progress, stated Ziegler. Quote, I stand with the Kinneys because they would stand with me. Without this sense of solidarity, there is no such thing as community. Without community, there is no neighborhood, no humanity, just business and profit, end quote. William Kinney Sr., an African-American man from the South, purchased the home with cash in 1955 as he and other African-American families were redlined out of getting loans in that part of town. The house passed to William Kinney Jr. in the early 1990s. In recent years, the neighborhood has become one of the most desirable areas in the city, with people moving there from across the country. A few years back, the city council rezoned the Kinney home and land around it along Mississippi Avenue for large-scale commercial development. Property there has been recently sought after by developers seeking to build large apartment and condominium buildings. The Kinneys are one of the few African-American families remaining in the now high-priced neighborhood. 
housing insecurity contributes to poor physical and mental health. For example, psychological distress, depression, anxiety, high blood pressure, etc. Eviction itself isn't a solution to a quote-unquote problem. It's an issue of health equity. And often when people are evicted, they move into inadequate housing, often houses that are overcrowded, and in some cases, these families become houseless. And that inadequate housing isn't just unsafe, but it oftentimes is transitional. Let's talk about transitional housing for a moment. It's such a deeply rooted insecurity to have another adult take you into their home and then have them be responsible for you, for taking care of you. There's so much shame involved with feeling like you can't take care of yourself and that you're in this situation for a reason. Like, no one wants to be in a position where they have to ask for help living because safe and equitable housing is a basic human right. It's essential to our health. And no matter what the transitional situation is, because there are different kinds, Mm -hmm. there are feelings of shame, like you mentioned, and I'm sure guilt as well. When you don't have your own home or your own space, you can feel like a burden and you've lost your autonomy, your privacy, your comfort, and your freedom. Right. And the only way to achieve health equity in transitional housing situations and eviction situations and gentrification, etc., would be through a comprehensive approach because there isn't one way to fix these systemic issues that disproportionately affect black communities and other minority groups. If there was one solution, one person would have already done it by now, but that also plays into the I can help instead of how can I help you? Exactly. There needs to be public policy changes that advocate for improved housing and especially access to housing. Yeah. When people have access to safe and affordable housing, it is beneficial to their health and livelihood and the community as a whole benefits. And it goes back to this idea of surviving and thriving for communities. When we reduce the evictions and eliminate forced displacement of vulnerable populations, then Without a doubt, communities are healthier and have a better opportunity to thrive. Exactly. And I'm going to quickly read because this family didn't just face all of these issues. They didn't just face the threat of eviction and getting removed from their home. They actually faced quite a bit of violence. So I'm going to read... During a pandemic. During a pandemic. During the wildfires on the West Coast where the air quality was over 500... It, I think it was over 700 at one point. Like it, it was off. Been, it was yeah. off the charts. There was ash it was falling from the sky. Yeah, it was an extremely unhealthy time. And then later, approaching winter, right. as cases are rising during the pandemic, right. they faced even more violence. I'm going to read the press release from December 8th at the Red House. For immediate release, December 8th, 2020, 4:55 p.m. Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and Portland Police Bureau lead violent eviction and sweep clash with community in latest chapter of Kinney family fight to save historic home. Events took place during a federal and state eviction moratoria. Portland, Oregon. In the early morning hours of December 8th, 2020, riot officers with the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, Portland Police Bureau, and possibly other law enforcement agencies violently dismantled the 75-plus-day Red House encampment in North Portland. Along with sweeping the encampment, which supports and surrounds the Red House, officers entered the home itself 
destroying its interior and violently arresting two residents, injuring at least one. At the time, this story was developing. Mm -hmm. The encampment began in response to an attempted violent removal of the Kinney family by the sheriff's office in September. Despite permission to camp from the landowner, officers indiscriminately swept the area, targeting the popular free community kitchen, misgendering campers, all in the middle of an economic crisis and pandemic. This is totally unacceptable behavior, says William X. Nietzsche, resident and son of the Red House owners, who was arrested and injured by officers. The Afro-Indigenous Kinney family, longtime owners of the Red House, maintain cultural and generational ties to the home in question. The Afro-Indigenous Kinney family, longtime owners of the Red House, maintain cultural and generational ties to the home in question. The tactics we are facing of sneaky and illegal foreclosure tactics, predatory banking and loans, elected judges who take campaign contributions from the real estate industry, coupled with violence from law enforcement and no real due process, have been used across this historically black neighborhood to displace black and poor people, says homeowner and indigenous elder Julie Metcalf. If black and indigenous lives matter in Portland, this must stop. Michael Kinney, son of the homeowner, Julie, was released from jail in the late afternoon after being arrested in the home. Approximately 16 others, including Nietzsche, were also arrested. The family reports that this autumn, Michael was targeted for arrest by PPB and his name was publicly slandered by right-wing Twitter after being targeted in a traffic stop. The family has ongoing litigation to keep possession of the historic home and has yet to receive any trial. This morning, PPB officers wore Portland Police Association regalia as they maintained a perimeter. Following the violent police sweep, neighbors and supporters reclaimed the land and home and clashed with police who set off tear gas against the crowd. Coverage of those clashes has been shared widely on social media. About 10 days after this event took place, this really awful day, the Kinneys included us in an invitation for representing the podcast, representing the podcast yeah. in a press conference. press conference that was done via Zoom. And, you know, it included a lot of press from various news organizations. Mm-hmm. And a huge part of this press conference was actually them addressing false reporting. Right. And there were so many articles that came out and that were slanderous. And, you know, the language was the language was violent uh, to the Kinney family. I just I want the real journalist who knows how to write with compassion and empathy, who can put themselves in the Kinney family's shoes and think of the situation in terms of what we can do as a community to make sure we're not leaving behind families, especially during a pandemic. Right. What journalists do is a huge responsibility. It's it's frustrating because they should know more than anybody what weight their wording carries. They have the ability to impact public opinion on a situation. And, you know, there were when this when this happened at the Red House, even people in different sections of Portland, like in Southwest Portland, that hadn't heard of this. But then when you talk to them about it, they immediately sided with the journalists that wrote about this story because they felt like they came at it with such confidence about what their experience was when it was completely incorrect. And right. And like I mentioned before, even bringing up things that weren't relevant 
to the foreclosure and eviction and the violence that the Kinney family faced that are like so far in the past and irrelevant to the current situation and irrelevant to the fact that regardless of the any of those things they deserve housing they do deserve housing and it did a disservice to the family because it turned a lot of people against them and their lived experience and what they were going through and that's so far from how we should behave with each other we need to figure out supportive systems and that includes proper journalism and reporting it's just it has to there has to be a partnership there was a lot of misunderstandings about mm-hmm. the encampment itself and right. and who that community of people were right and i mean we went there a couple times we did there was a lot of community mutual aid that was happening and i think that's a great thing it's incredible the mutual aid that has been happening more and more mm-hmm. Since the pandemic, and especially since the Black Lives Matter protests, of communities looking out for each other and taking care of each other has extreme value. Yeah, it does. The, you know, the family, um, after they spoke out about what they were going through, they were receiving death threats because because of some of the journalistic integrity the death threats they were facing were from white supremacy groups in the area and that's frightening that not only threatens the health of the kinney family but it threatened the health of everybody in the neighborhood too it it really did and i remember thinking that people would and i'm sure there were people who did um judge the situation from the perimeter of the encampment Mm -hmm. because of the people guarding it were in bulletproof vests and like were ready they seemed like they were ready for violence but what people don't realize is they were ready for violence to be placed upon them not ready to start it exactly but ready to protect each other and themselves there was a day where we were bringing some mutual aid supplies by Mm -hmm. Some personal protective equipment. Yep. And Mm -hmm. the person who was at the entry we went through, who was guarding that part of the perimeter, we couldn't see because we were carrying stuff. We were focused on, like, getting through. We were bringing some shelving. Yeah. We were focusing on carrying what we had. And he was kind of coming towards us Mm -hmm. with... Bear mace. Yeah, with bear (laughs) mace. And we both kind of looked... And then I looked over my shoulder and there's this white, big white pickup truck with a white guy in it going so slow. Yeah, it was creepy. And I remember the person at the perimeter was like, I'm sorry if I scared you. I was like, I was a bit thrown off until I saw the person behind me. Then I understood what you were doing. It was a white He was watching. Yeah. And it must have been a car that was circling. Yeah. What's... What's... I guess not crazy because we've been seeing white supremacy... Like, more and more and more yeah. lately. But what's, um, I guess, yeah. what kind of wild is the fact that that experience for us two mm-hmm. was so minor in comparison right. to what the people in that encampment faced every day they were there. Exactly. Yeah. And are likely still facing. Yeah. I mean, there was even one, we went on another day to drop off some food. them and as we were leaving the perimeter there was a car that stopped 
and took our picture as we left as if that was going to be resourceful. That was just such a weird and scary situation. But to be honest, it didn't stop us from wanting to help out. No, it didn't. And in contrast to that, inside the encampment was such a kind, welcoming community of people who were there for, yes, a very serious purpose. But they, they still managed to be helpful, be respectful, be a full community within that. And it was just a single city block. Yeah. You know, of all the articles that came out about this situation, not one of the journalists really seemed like they had gone inside the perimeter and spent time there, got to know the people that were there and the reason why they were there. It was as if they all just showed up around the barricade, kind of took note of what was just around and they didn't know the situation. So when Keely and I went into the encampment, I mean, within 10 minutes, someone offered me a quesadilla and I just was so blown away by that because it was just like, it was so opposite of what the reports were. Yeah. And it, I think it really speaks to, um, that they were there to help each other, to help yeah. everybody who was there for, like, the common cause, the common goal, yep. was treated with respect and, and as, and, like, they deserved to be taken care of by each other. Right. And it, I just think it, this whole situation, you can relate it to the way that the media has been able to spin the idea that people that protest are violent and they're rioters and that's not the case it's you have to be able to question the source of information where you're getting it from who you're getting it from and you have to be able to think for yourself and think did this person really experience the situation or are they just doing this for profit are they just trying to come in and finish an article because it's part of their job and they don't want to lose their job or and I think also just because you're experiencing violence, yeah, like we've seen through police brutality um, towards individuals, towards protests, towards Red House encampment, yeah, um, just because you are experiencing violence does not mean you've gone looking for it. Right. And it still doesn't mean that you don't deserve safe and equitable housing. So cheers to strong communities and brutally honest and unashamed conversations that create healthy behavior changes. And to valuing the lived experiences of our neighbors. And cheers to resilience. Cheers to that. Mm -hmm.